After paying more than $12 million per delegate, Mike Bloomberg drops out of the presidential race and endorses Joe Biden. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders releases a new ad starring Barack Obama. We will examine why the establishment always wins. Then, at a pro-abortion rally, Rashida Tlaib shrieks and Chuck Schumer threatens two Supreme Court justices. We will analyze why pro-abortion activists are always so crazy. Then Alex Trebek gives some much-needed perspective. And finally, the mailbag. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Mini Mike is out. Mini Mike is out, and I'm very, very sad. Bloomberg releases this statement. I always believed that defeating Donald Trump starts with uniting behind the candidate with the best shot to do it. After yesterday's vote, it is clear that candidate is my friend and great American, Joe Biden. I've known Joe for a very long time. I know his decency, his honesty, his commitment to the issues that are so important to our country, including gun safety, health care, climate change, and good jobs. Now, if Mike Bloomberg had known that about, I don't know, a few months ago, uh, he would have been able to save $500 million. So I always thought Mike Bloomberg was a smart guy. You know, he's had this very successful career, fin finance media mogul, three-term mayor of New York. But turns out he's a complete idiot because he blew $500 million when he could have just endorsed his decent, honest, wonderful, great friend, Joe Biden. Uh, obviously, campaign a huge waste of money. Sorry to see him go because the Trump impersonation of him was really great. It is worth pointing out, though, for people who say, oh, my gosh, Mike Bloomberg just blew all this money. What a total dolt. It is worth remembering just what $500 million means to Mike Bloomberg. So $500 million to Mike Bloomberg. If you look at the median net worth of an American who is Mike Bloomberg's age, it, it turns out that number is $264,800. Okay. Uh, Mike Bloomberg is worth about $60 billion. So for Mike Bloomberg to spend $500 million would be like the median 77-year-old American spending $2,200. So it would be like, you know, like a really nice birthday present, like, the, like a really super nice birthday present, you know. Or it would be like, I don't know, going on a vacation. That, that was Mike. Mike Bloomberg went on vacation. He went and he, and he didn't even go like totally crazy on vacation. <laughs> That's fabulous. Great job, Mike Bloomberg. Sorry to see you go. Personally, his only accomplishment was winning American Samoa. Politically, though, his accomplishment is he may have finished off the Democratic primary. By dropping out, Mike Bloomberg has now given up all of the establishment resistance to Joe Biden. So you've got Joe Biden now running away with the establishment lane. You've got Bernie Sanders in the anti-establishment lane. And you've got Elizabeth Warren not knowing who she is. <laughs> I guess she's running anti-establishment. You know, she's anti-establishment anti in the same way that she's a Cherokee Indian. Uh, Joe Biden is doing really great as a result of all of this. Biden has now moved up to 36% in uh, national polls. This is according to Morning Consult. He's now eight points ahead nationally of where Bernie Sanders is. Uh, just 10 days ago, Joe Biden was at 19% in this poll. So that no, that's a huge increase. I mean, you're talking about 17 percentage points up. Uh, 
this helps him. You know, we talked a lot about whether Joe Biden was going to have a viable candidacy. And when he kept losing and losing and losing, he was dropping down in all the polls. He was collapsing at the debates. I said on this show, Joe Biden, if he loses the electability argument, is nowhere. He doesn't have anything else. People aren't going to elect him for his firmly held beliefs. He doesn't have any firmly held beliefs. They're not going to elect him for his uh, youth and vigor, <laughs> certainly. What they're going to elect him for is because he has a shot at beating Donald Trump. Now, if he kept losing and losing and losing, especially if he lost South Carolina, that argument goes away. But the flip side is true now as well. Joe Biden blows out South Carolina, so the electability argument looks really good. And the first rule of electoral politics is you got to pick a winner. So uh, Joe Biden doing very well right now. President Trump, though, absolutely loving this. He's loving this divide between the establishment and the anti-establishment. We will get to why, we will get to how, we will get to a lot more craziness. First, I got to thank our friends over at Ancestry DNA. I love Ancestry. I've been using Ancestry since before the Daily Wire existed. I always loved genealogy, kind of mapping out my family. Now, Ancestry DNA can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. So they're, they're not just going to go look and say, okay, you're 25% Italian and 25%. It's not like that. It, I mean, it'll tell you that too. But also with Ancestry DNA, you can trace the paths of your recent ancestors. You can learn how and why your family moved from place to place around the world. That is a unique service offered from, from Ancestry DNA. It's easy to start making discoveries. Just uh, go grab an Ancestry DNA kit and uh, start a free trial to amplify your discoveries. I found out really cool stuff about my guys. I mean, the, for the Mayflower ancestors, found out one of them is a, uh, he was like a good guy. He was a pilgrim. And then the other three were complete degenerates. Then on the Italian side, I got to trace them moving out of Sicily. Just a fabulous service. Start exploring your family story today. Head to my URL at Ancestry.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S. That is Ancestry.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial, Ancestry.com slash Knowles. Trump is just loving all of this. So, so President Trump just tweeted out amid all of the chaos in the, in the Democratic primary. He goes, quote, The Democrat establishment came together and crushed Bernie Sanders again. Even the fact that Elizabeth Warren stayed in the race was devastating to Bernie and allowed Sleepy Joe to unthinkably win Massachusetts. It was a perfect storm with many good states remaining for Joe. He's not done. So selfish for Elizabeth Warren to stay in the race. She has zero chance of even coming close to winning, but hurts Bernie badly. So much for their wonderful liberal friendship. Will he ever speak to her again? She cost him Massachusetts and came in third. He shouldn't, right? So he's rubbing salt in the wound. All he wants to do is irritate this Democratic primary, right? The best thing he can hope for, even more important than who wins, is just to cause bitter, bitter rancor within the party so that the Bernie bros don't vote for Biden, or if, if uh, Bernie somehow wins it, that the establishment won't vote for Bernie. They'll be so demoralized. Now, Bernie is not taking this lying down. A week ago, Bernie Sanders was, was running away with the Democratic nomination. He was doing just great. And now everyone's come together. They're going to crush him. Well, he's not ready for that yet. So he just released an ad. Really takes some cojones to release this ad. He is putting forward the next leg of his campaign by showing how much Barack Obama 
loves him. Bernie is somebody who has the virtue of saying exactly what he believes, great authenticity, great passion, and is fearless. Bernie served on the Veterans Committee and got bills done. I think people are ready for a call to action. They want honest leadership who cares about them. They want somebody who's going to fight for them. And they will find it in Bernie. That's where I feel the burn. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. Yeah, take that, Joe. Yeah, you like that? You like how that feels? <laughs> so really brilliant campaign ad. This is really smart. He's doing it for two reasons. One is to needle Joe Biden, Biden's former boss, saying all these wonderful things about Bernie Sanders. And yet that same guy, Barack Obama, has not come out and endorsed Joe Biden yet. That's pretty embarrassing. That's humiliating. The second reason is Bernie Sanders is now probably too little too late, trying to make a play to win over some establishment support. So in that ad, it would seem like Barack Obama is endorsing Bernie Sanders, right? They're walking together in the White House. He's saying all these great things. I'm feeling the burn. You got a fighter in Bernie Sanders. But he hasn't endorsed Bernie Sanders. He endorsed Bernie for Senate, I guess. But he didn't endorse Bernie Sanders for president. He hasn't made an endorsement yet. So it's a little deceptive. I mean, it's a little duplicitous for him to do that. Uh, really brilliant ad, though, because other than just really getting under Joe Biden's skin, Bernie realizes that he made a mistake. Bernie's mistake was he's always been the outsider, anti-establishment candidate, just railing against the man. Doesn't matter if he accomplishes anything. He doesn't have to. It actually hurts him if he accomplishes something because then he's not an outsider. Then he's part of the swamp. Then he's wheeling and dealing and compromising. So he's always run in this way since he was a, getting kicked off a commune, right? He's always been that radical when Bernie became the front runner in the Democratic Party, there was certainly a path for him. I suppose there still is a path for him to become the president. But he's got to start acting like a nominee. He can't just act like the angry old codger who's, you know, yelling at kids to get off his lawn. That's fine in a primary to an extent, but you you need to act like the candidate. You have to act like the front runner at a certain point. You know, uh, President Trump descending the stairs at Trump Tower when he's announcing his campaign. All he's doing is throwing bombs. All he is is the outsider. But eventually, he takes on the leadership of that primary. He starts acting like the front runner. Bernie failed to do that. I think his advisors, certainly at least, realized this was a mistake. So he's going to start making that play now. And a Bernie Sanders who can appeal to the establishment sounds like a contradiction in terms. But that could be a really potent force if he can pull it off. Uh, President Trump, for his part, of course, is fanning the flames. So, you know, Trump's whole strategy is say nice things about Bernie, say mean things about Joe Biden and Mike Bloomberg. Uh, now, what President Trump is trying to avoid is a unified Democratic Party. So if they get to the convention, let's say Joe Biden gets it, and Bernie Sanders says, okay, Joe, you, you know, you won fair and square, Joe, so I endorse you or something to that effect. Uh, that would be very bad for, for President Trump. So he's out there. And uh, he's going to rallies and he, much like Bernie Sanders is needling Joe Biden, Trump is now needling Bernie Sanders and implying that if Bernie were to get on board with Joe Biden, he would be a sellout. He would be a fraud. He would be pathetic. You convinced now it's Biden's to lose? I think so. I just don't know, you know, how he gets there. I don't know how he gets across the line. Maybe he will. Maybe it's, who knows? He was always very gaff prone. He was always, uh, 
he was always in trouble in that way, but never like this. You know, this is going, what's going on now is crazy. But I think they'll do anything to assume power. And if they think he can do better than Bernie, and I guess they have less control over Bernie. You know, Bernie is some more firm stuff. But I was surprised when Bernie got uh, beaten up last time that he went out and endorsed Hillary and went around and did like a good puppy like he's supposed to do. I was a little surprised at that. And uh, even this time, as he was saying about how wonderful, you know, Joe Biden's a wonderful guy, a wonderful man. And, um, you know, I'm a little bit surprised by it. It's almost like he's I don't know if he's admitting defeat. He might be. But I watched him yesterday saying or just a little while ago saying very good things about sleepy Joe Biden. And I was yeah. a little bit surprised. And I was just a little surprised that uh, Bernie's acting like a little puppy, you know, like a good little puppy. Yeah, like a punk, like a little. <laughs> oh, oh, he's so. This is this is when Trump is at his absolute best. This this man is the leader of the free world, and he's calling into Sean Hannity's cable show, and and playing kind of the role of pundit, provocateur, comedian, just pushing him. Right. He starts out with the compliment, starts saying, "Yeah, you know, I was really respected, Bernie. Bernie's a little more for himself. He can't be controlled." Yeah, you know, he's like a real man. He's a real guy, except he's acting like a total loser. Oh, yeah, he's acting like just a wimp. You know, he's just letting himself get pushed around by the Democrats. I hope he doesn't do that again. It's so sad. It's so pathetic. That's a pretty good strategy. What he's doing is trying not only to incite Bernie here, he's trying to back Bernie into a corner. I don't think that Bernie is going to be completely emotionally manipulable or something like that. I think what President Trump is doing, maybe there's a little bit of that, but what he's really trying to do is politically position it such that Bernie Sanders can't face his supporters and say, okay, it was a good fight, but I support Joe because his supporters will eat him alive. He wants to make it such that, or Trump wants to make it such that Bernie has no other way to turn but to fight this thing out until the end. And so far, I think that's going pretty well. The fact that, that Bernie would release that ad insinuating that Obama endorsed him, that's a pretty strong sign that uh, Bernie Sanders is not going anywhere anytime soon. And that just sounds great to me. <laughs> uh, turning away from 2020 down to the Supreme Court, there's a big Supreme Court case coming down the pike that it will really challenge the abortion regime in America. This uh, case is about the Louisiana abortion law that uh, there's so many abortion laws that came out last year, right? There was Louisiana, there was Missouri, there was Georgia. There were all, all these different laws. So it's sometimes hard to keep, keep track of them. But the issue at play here in the Louisiana abortion law is that abortionists, according to the law, need to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. That's it. That's the issue that's going to the Supreme Court. It's not that they're going to outlaw abortion everywhere. It's not, it's not that. It's a pretty pretty simple, totally reasonable idea that if you're an abortionist in Louisiana, you need to have admitting privileges at a hospital. You know, you need to have high medical standards. We don't want women being hurt in this. We don't want the procedure to happen at all. We don't want any abortion, but we also don't want uh, women to die or be hurt as a result of this. We want actual doctors doing it, not just uh, cheap killers. So there was a rally yesterday outside the Supreme Court, we saw one of the craziest displays from the activist level all the way up 
to the minority leader of the U.S. Senate. And it shows you something about this issue. We will get to that in a second. First, I got to thank our friends over at Legacy Box. Legacy Box is so great. It is a way for you to easily and affordably digitally preserve your past. This has happened, especially for me, with family members who have died. You know, I've got these photos that I really want to save, but the photos start to fade. The film, you know, VHS definitely starts to fade. So I thought, oh, no, they're just going to go away. I'm not going to have any memories. You just send them, or, you know, a fire happens, or you move, or you lose them, whatever. You send in these photos to Legacy Box. They digitize everything for you. They share it with you. You get a thumb drive, DVD. You get it on the cloud. It's ready to watch, share, and enjoy. Such a great idea. Invest in your past. Invest in your your memories and in your family. Get started preserving your past today. Go to LegacyBox.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, to get an incredible 40% off your first order. So get all get all those orders in there, 40% off your first order. Buy today, take advantage of this exclusive order, send it in when you're ready. Legacybox.com slash Knowles, save 40% while supplies last. So we saw this pro-abortion rally to protest the case that's coming up yesterday. It was outside the Supreme Court. This woman, here's an abortion activist, uh, this woman, listen to the tone of her voice. Listen, even beyond the arguments she's making, listen simply to how she sounds. Tells you a lot about the abortion issue. Where are the abortion providers at? Where are the future abortion providers at? Woo! Awesome. And a special shout out to where my people who had abortions. Where y'all at? Nothing about this work is going to be without us. Woo! Awesome. So, as I said, I had an abortion when I was 19. It was honestly one of the best decisions of my life. I was simply not ready to become a parent, and that's really all you need to know. Hey, lady, who are you trying to convince? Who are you trying to convince? I mean, you just see that she's so strained. She's so pushing this narrative out there. I'm so happy that I killed my child. I've what a great decision I made. I definitely don't regret that and it hasn't really damaged my life. I mean, anybody with eyes and ears can see that this is a tortured woman. You hear it in her voice, the, sh- sh- the shrieking, the screaming, the tension in what she's saying. Of course, I mean, pe- look, people Make mistakes all the time, okay? If you if you make a mistake, even if it's a mistake that bad, you can regret it, ask forgiveness, move on. But but these people can't. They can't get over the pride and the horror that they may have committed such an egregious act. And it's not just one or two random activists. I mean, political activists generally they can be sort of eccentric people, right? But it's it's the same sort of tone of voice. It's the same kind of shrill, angry, uh, tense, uncredible, incredible uh, tone that you see with congressmen and with senators when they do it. Uh, Rashida Tlaib, one of the members of the squad, goes out there, the exact same rally, same tone of voice, same ridiculous arguments. Past year, I realized, my, 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 are they obsessed with our bodies, how we talk, how we look, what we stand for. I mean, this type of policing of our bodies is so interconnected to all the social justice movements all around the country. 
I represent the third poorest congressional district in the country. This issue is an economic justice issue. This issue is a racial justice issue. And let me tell you, this obsession with our bodies. You know, I, in the legislature, in the Michigan legislature for six years, used to say people to people, yo, yo, you know what? You're so freaking obsessed with what I decide to do with my body. Maybe you shouldn't even want to have sex with me or with you or with any woman. Hold on, pause it right there. I just need to correct the record before Rashida Tlaib continues. That is not something I have ever wanted to do. Not That is of all the things that one could imagine doing with Rashida Tlaib, that is not one of them. So please do not accuse me of ever wanting to do that. That on the, things of, uh, the list of things I want to do just in general in the world, that is very, very far down near the bottom. She goes on. The power that we have over our bodies to push back and use that power and saying enough is enough. We won't stand by for you to commercialize, for you to profit, for you to do all the things you do to what? To make us less than in this country, because that's what it does. So I want you to know there is more of us than them. And there it is. That's her whole argument, right? She's making all of these really stupid slogany arguments. They're like bumper stickers. They don't mean anything. When she says, we want to control our bodies. No, they don't. I mean, anybody who is even somewhat honest about the abortion issue would say it's not about your body that people are concerned. It's the child's body. So it isn't that. They say it's about making us less than. No, it's about we don't think you should kill babies. That's what it's about. <laughs> you, you, you can try to argue that or you say it's we have to be able to kill babies for equality, but at least be honest about the issue. So she, she puts out these slogans and then she finally gets to her real argument, which is there's more of us than there are of them. That's not a moral argument. There's more of us than them. It's not an argument from justice or it's not, not ethical at all. You're just saying that you're a mob and you're going to force your will on other people. Justice be damned. Unborn baby be damned. Who cares? You're just going to do it. This was actually the subject of my talk last night at uh, UC Santa, Santa Cruz. I was giving a talk on when democracy goes wrong. When democracy goes wrong is when people start making arguments like this, which is there's more of us than them. That's, that's not uh, coherent. I mean, sh- duh. Yeah, I guess any mob, any lynch mob in the world can go and effect their will on somebody. That doesn't make it right. That's, you've got to argue beyond that. But Rashida Tlaib can't. Why? I don't know anything about Rashida Tlaib's past. I just know about her political ideology. And I know that she is trying to convince a lot of people, and maybe herself, of this argument that is untenable. It's indefensible. It's why she gets shrill. It's why she shrieks. It's why she makes these slogan arguments that fall flat. And it's eventually why she says, I want it. I mean, that's what that means, right? There's more of us than them is I want it. I'm going to do it. Me, 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 me. And uh, not very convincing to the rest of us. Uh, Then it wasn't just Rashida Tlaib. It went even higher than that to the Senate minority leader, Chuck Schumer, who took this argument rather than talking about his body or having sex with him. Thank goodness. He talked about how he was uh, going to threaten two justices on the Supreme Court if they permitted this restriction on abortion, if they uh, permitted the Louisiana law, which forces abortionists to at least 
have admitting privileges at hospitals. Here's the crazed Schumer. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you. You will pay the price. You won't know what hit you. So that's not just criticism of Supreme Court justices. Right now, the Democrats are trying to spin this and say, oh, he was just criticizing the Supreme Court. That's fine. That's perfectly within bounds. He wasn't doing that. He said, you won't know what hit you. We're coming after you. What does that mean? Supreme Court justices have life tenure, so it's not like they're going to say, we're going to get you out in the next election. You won't know what hit you, especially at this very intense, shrieky rally. Just You can hear it in his voice, too. There's something about the abortion issue that makes people lose their minds and sound like demons. They said, just listen to the voice. It's like, rah. Or it's like I was waiting for them to start speaking Latin backwards. It's so ugly. It's so, it's different than any other issue. And uh, I, I think part of that is because they know that there's no coherent argument. So all they can do is enforce their will. It's not about reason. It's about will. And a part of it, I think, is because it's, it's simply evil. Abortion is evil and evil warps people's minds. For his part, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, issued a rare statement in response to Schumer's threat. He said, quote, Uh, This was obviously a written statement. This morning, Senator Schumer spoke at a rally in front of the Supreme Court while a case was being argued inside. Senator Schumer referred to two members of the Supreme Court by name and said he wanted to tell them that, quote, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You will not know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Justices know that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they are dangerous. All members of the court will continue to do their jobs without fear or favor, from whatever quarter. Great statement from the Chief Justice, who always tries to remain the most neutral guy in the room, sometimes to ill effect because he won't stand up for things that are right. But this was, this was true. This is absolutely beyond the bounds. The next time they tell you that Donald Trump is destroying norms and decency in this country, remember Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer threatening two members of the Supreme Court. The next time they tell you about all the, oh, how terrible the, the tweets, the mean tweets, Trump is so outrageous. Remember this line. This is the Chuck Schumer line, maybe the most egregious statement from a senior government official that I've seen in my lifetime. I, I don't think I've seen anything close to this. Uh, shows you we're kind of careening toward rancor and division, and it's... Uh, it's being led by the left. It's not, it's not being led by the right. Uh, Alex Trebek will show us a little perspective on this. Uh, Alex Trebek, the longtime host of Jeopardy, he was diagnosed a year ago with uh, pancreatic cancer, stage four pancreatic cancer, where, you know, it's not a good look when you get stage four pancreatic cancer. Usually you're gone within a few months. A year later, Alex Trebek is still alive and he gave his viewers an update about this. I think we could all learn something from Trebek's update and attitude. Hi, everyone. If you've got a minute, I'd like to bring you up to date on my health situation. The one-year survival rate for stage four pancreatic cancer patients is 18%. I'm very happy to report I have just reached that marker. 
Now, I'd be lying if I said the journey had been an easy one. There were some good days, but a lot of not-so-good days. I joked with friends that the cancer won't kill me, the chemo treatments will. There were moments of great pain, days when certain bodily functions no longer functioned, and sudden massive attacks of great depression that made me wonder if it really was worth fighting on. But I brushed that aside quickly because that would have been a massive betrayal, a betrayal of my wife and soulmate Jean, who has given her all to help me survive. It would have been a betrayal of other cancer patients who have looked to me as an inspiration and a, a cheerleader of sorts of the value of living and hope. And it would certainly have been a betrayal of my faith in God and the millions of prayers that have been said on my behalf. What a statement. What a guy. What an outlook. He's got pretty much the worst health condition you can possibly have. He somehow miraculously survives a whole year already. And he says, oh, I'm just so grateful. I feel a sense of duty. I would never give up hope because I don't want to betray you and don't want to betray my family. And most importantly, I don't want to betray my God. Whoa, what an attitude. <laughs> this guy's going through some serious problems. Compare that to, I was at UC Santa Cruz last night. I'm still in Santa Cruz. Uh, the grad students are on strike because I think they're, they're making something like $35 an hour and they want to make $50 an hour. So they're on strike and they're not doing their jobs and they won't grade the papers. And they're furious. They're angry. They're committing acts of violence. They're committing like felonies actually in their protest of the administration. Two attitudes. One of humility, gratitude, duty. One of entitlement, uh, anger, resentment, selfishness. Hillary Clinton, before we get to mailbag, I, I've got to Hillary Clinton might be the political embodiment of all this. Hillary Clinton just did an interview on ABC News, and uh, she was asked in this interview how it felt to really, really have won the presidential election, but then to just not be the president for whatever reason. Look back, would it have been more easy to handle losing outright than to have really won but still lost? That was really tough. It was not only winning by three million votes and, and uh, having all the weird things happen at the end that uh, interfered with my uh, votes. Really, really, she won. You know that. We all know that. But it's just because of some like little random technicality like the Constitution or, or the people who voted or something, uh, she's not the president. That attitude of just resentment, entitlement, delusion, it just makes you look ridiculous. You look at her, we just all laugh at Hillary Clinton, right? We laugh at the ABC journalist, journalist too. We laugh at the grad students at UCSC. They just look so small, so petty. And then you look at uh, like Alex Trebek and you say, wow, what a man, what a guy, what an attitude. Be like Alex Trebek. Uh, we have got to get to the mailbag. We will get to that in a second. First, I've got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. And before we do that, I've got to encourage you to go get Drew Clavin's new book, The Nightmare Feast. This is the second book in the Another Kingdom trilogy. I voiced the entire Another Kingdom trilogy, both in the podcast and in the audiobooks. We're about to go into the studio to do the uh, second book's audiobook next week. Uh, just a tremendous trilogy. And it's one of these weird trilogies where it gets better with each book. So the first one is very good. It jumped to the top of the charts on, on Apple Podcasts. Then the second one is better. And the third one is best of all. And you got to read the second to read the third. Uh, go get it right now. You can get it anywhere 
that uh, excellent books are sold. It's about an out-of-luck Hollywood screenwriter who can't catch a break, walks through a door into another kingdom where there are ogres and, and monsters and damsels who are dying with daggers in their chest. Uh, the book is really, really profound. It's got an incredible cultural and spiritual message. So go, go check it out. And also, by the way, Super Tuesday is over. But according to Joe Biden, Super Thursday is on the way. And uh, right now, we are offering 25% off all Daily Wire membership plans when you use coupon code NEVERSOCIALIST. This is my favorite coupon code we've had so far. It's important you remember that code, just like it's important that Joe Biden remembers the Declaration of Independence. You know, go go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and get the, the thing. You know, you know the thing. Uh, you get everything. You get uh, all the shows. You get to ask questions in the mailbag. You get, uh, if you're at the all-access tier, you get to ask questions in Q&As. You get the leftist tiers tumbler, and you get the Daily Wire app. You get so much. 25% off Daily Wire memberships. Use the coupon code NEVERSOCIALIST for Super Thursday. Is that what Joe Biden's calling it? Super Thursday. Dailywire.com slash subscribe. We'll be right back. Let's get into the mailbag from Confused Girlfriend. Hmm. Dear Michael Knowles, I greatly enjoy your show and would like your opinion on dating. I met a guy while working on my master's degree and have been dating him for the past four months. He does all the right dating things like paying for dinner, opening his truck door, and he even drives me home after classes every day. Since we met at a university, I thought he would be a little left-leaning. I did not expect him to be a self-proclaimed Bernie bro. Ugh. So my question is, do you think a hardcore conservative and a Bernie bro have a future? Thanks. It depends. It depends how much of a Bernie bro he is. I think some people say they're Bernie bros just for the meme, just because it's kind of contrarian and, you know, they're young and young people tend to be liberal and then they become more conservative. The reason I'm not saying just dump him outright is because he pays for dinner. Bernie Sanders wouldn't pay for dinner. Bernie Sanders would reach into your pocketbook while you were out at pattering your nose. Uh, he, he holds the truck door open. I don't know that Bernie Sanders would hold that truck door open. We need equality now. Men don't hold doors open for women. So he sounds like, more than anything, he's a confused young man. And uh, what you should do is push him on this. Get, you know, push him a little bit on the political questions that make him a Bernie bro. And then the cultural questions, and ultimately the religious questions. Because don't forget, Marxism posits a kind of worldview that takes the place of religion, right? It's the, uh, it was referred to as the God that failed by Ronald Reagan and many others. So I would push him on that a little bit, see where he falls. A lot of people are liberal when they're young. Even I went through a liberal phase, and I was pretty much born into this world smoking a cigar with parted hair. So, you know, see where it stands, see, push him a little bit. Maybe get to some deeper issues too, you know, cultural issues, values, religion, that kind of thing. And uh, maybe I'd give him a little bit of chance. The minute he stops paying for dinner, though, he's gone. From Reagan, you answered a question once before about yoga and practicing yoga as a Christian with the breathing and chants, etc. I was wondering about your opinion on astrology. The stars are real. So are the noticed patterns a type of, so are the noticed patterns a type of religion, therefore, uh, should it not be accepted at all by Christians? I personally find it interesting, but give little credit to it. Thanks. 
Well, the Bible's pretty clear. You should not uh, consult astrologers. And the reason for this, when you talk to atheists about it, they say, they say, oh, that's so ridiculous. It's so bogus. That's so crazy, you know. But Christians don't necessarily say that astrology and all these kind of weird little esoteric religions are crazy. We just say they're bad. You shouldn't do it. You've got your own religion, right? Love the Lord your God. Just You got one God. That's it. Okay. And then there are these other pseudo-religions, like astrology, for instance, or gender theory is another kind of religious worldview, which says that my body has nothing to do with who I am, that I'm just secretly something else, and I've got to change my body to get more in line with whatever I metaphysically am. All these different religions that you've got to reject because your God is a jealous God. Uh, Same thing with yoga. You know, look, does it matter if you go out and stretch? No, but the thing about yoga is that it is a liturgical practice. I mean, people treat yoga like church. You do chanting. It's got this very spiritual element to it, and it's not the spiritual world that you believe in, apparently. So uh, you got to kind of pick and choose. If you want to go stretch, go. Fine, go stretch. You want to go do Pilates? Yeah, that sounds good, but you don't need to do this liturgical thing. And when it comes to astrology, I would not consult astrologists. It's so funny. I live in LA, you know, so everyone's an atheist but they all are totally into their zodiac signs and they all completely believe it. I think, wait a second, guys, hold on. It's, you, you can't believe in the dominant religion that has, you know, has the most explanatory power that has shaped our entire civilization, but you believe that some little blurb in the newspaper is going to tell you your future? That's a little weird. It's because, it's because I think atheists believe religious people, Christians especially, are superstitious when ironically, really religious people are the least superstitious people on earth. And actually, it's the people who think that they're not religious, they tend to fall into the most superstition. But in short, I would stay away from astrology. From Nick, Michael, where did this huge push for saving the cows come from? (laughs) Like, why not focus on saving whales, deer, or Amy Schumer? (laughs) Curious to know your thoughts. Thanks. The reason that the left now is focusing on saving the cows and you can't milk the cows more than any other issue is because the left wants it to hurt. The left wants to feel a little pain, a little penance, a little discipline. And when it comes to cows, people like hamburgers. When it comes to dairy, they like cheese, they like milk, and they want to feel it. This comes from the same kind of religious impulse, right? We all know that we're broken people. We all know that we're fallen. And so we acknowledge that. We acknowledge our sins. We confess our sins. We do penance. We atone. For the left, they don't have an outlet for that, or they don't think they have an outlet for that. So they don't admit that human beings are irreparably flawed, right? They believe in the perfectibility of human nature. They believe in utopia so often. They believe that they're good people. They celebrate pride, right? The sin that actually causes mankind to fall. So they believe in all this stuff, but they know that they're kind of rotten. Because look, if you look in a mirror long enough, you can figure it out that you're a kind of rotten person. And so they feel that they need to atone for their sin of whatever, causing suffering to the cows or something. And uh, whereas there would would obviously be many uh, simpler ways to help the environment, help animals, uh, rather than just giving up milk. I mean, ironically, if you don't milk a cow, the cow is in pain. But people like milk, people like cheese, so they want to feel it themselves. They want to say, like in the Catholic Church, you say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, my fault, my fault, through my most grievous fault. And uh, that's what they're doing by not drinking milk. 
That's what Joaquin Phoenix is feeling too. Uh, from Andrew, do you support term limits for members of Congress and why? Thanks. No, I don't. And I don't because I think that term limits for members of Congress would not reduce the power of the federal government. It would not reduce the uh, interference that the federal government has in my life. It would simply make the federal government less accountable. Why would the federal government be less accountable? Because the actual members of Congress would have even less power than they do now. And instead, the people running Congress would be the staff and would be the lobbyists. To an extent, this is already true. You know, the people who are, who are in Congress the longest sometimes are the staff. And the staff don't get elected, especially if you're on a committee or something like that. You're just there forever. The lobbyists are there forever. The, the elected officials come and go, but the lobbyists remain. The swamp remains. The bureaucracy remains. The biggest threat to our liberty from the federal government is this entrenched bureaucracy at the executive agencies in particular. So I think it would be a huge mistake to set up term limits in Congress that would uh, empower the, the congressional bureaucracy even more. We have term limits in this country. They were set up by the Constitution. They're called elections. From Kyle. Hi, Michael. One topic I have not heard discussed often is whether child support payments should be required during pregnancy. If a man and woman are divorced or separated, should a father be legally required to financially support a pregnant mother? This would mean that men could be held responsible for medical expenses as well as increased financial assistance toward the end of pregnancy when the woman is no longer able to work. Do you think conservatives would get behind this policy? This is a great idea. There's a little bit of an issue with it, which is that if the man and woman are, you know, the woman becomes pregnant and then they divorce right after she becomes pregnant, that's a pretty bad marriage. I mean, you're in a pretty rotten place if you're going to get divorced right after uh, pregnancy. Let's say that they're not married, you know, just one night stand and the, the woman becomes pregnant. Uh, they should get married. The two people should then get married. The, the answer to that is not that he should pay a little bit more money in child support. The answer to that is they should get married. If a guy, if a husband impregnates his wife and then they want to get divorced right afterward, the answer to that is they should not get divorced in virtually all cases. Some cases you do need a separation, you know, if you're in abuse or something like that. But virtually all cases, all cases that, that we really talk about that I think are being referred to here, just stay married. Okay, that's that would be the preference. We need to encourage marriage. We need to change uh, laws governing the ease of divorce, laws governing uh, family courts, for instance. Barring all of that, I think in principle, of course, it's a great idea. You know, the woman is going to have a lot of expenses when she gets pregnant. And so the man who impregnated her, the father of the baby, should certainly pay for that. And the other reason this is a great idea is the left could, could uh, accept this argument because it is feminist, I guess, you know, it helps the woman, but the right would love this argument because of course, then everyone would have to acknowledge that the baby is a baby even before he's born. From Ryan. Hi, Michael. Last night on Backstage, you guys were debating about how conservatism should be defined. It was suggested that conservatism should be defined by specific principles rather than general inclinations. If I have properly listed, listened to what you've said, this is something that you disagree with. Could you explain why it is best for conservatism to be an inclination rather than a set of principles? Thank you for a great show. Yes, this is a big disagreement between the libertarian right wing and the conservative right wing or the traditionalist right wing. The, the libertarianism is an ideology. 
Okay, so you can list it on a sheet of paper. It's a manifesto. It's got these, it's governed by abstract principles. It's a rationalist, modernist ideology. Conservatism is not, or at least it's not supposed to be. A conservatism, modern conservatism, comes to us from Edmund Burke, who is a, a great Irish, philo- Irish Anglo philosopher. And uh, you see this history throughout America, too. Uh, Edmund Burke was a big supporter of the American Revolution. Uh, Russell Kirk wrote a great book about this called The American Mind, where he kind of traces the evolution of conservative thought. Another great book on this is Michael Oakeshott. Michael Oakeshott, uh, he's a great author on this. The book is Rationalism and Politics. The trouble with ideology that Michael Oakeshott describes in this essay is that ideology is just so narrow. It's so wrong. You're just sort of formalizing and abstracting and abridging just the kind of very narrowly rational truths that you can deduce from the whole wide world, from all of our tradition. That's not very conservative. That is ultimately a modernist, rationalist idea. It's not terribly different in its premises from leftism, whereas the conservative knows the world is a lot bigger than that, okay? Edmund Burke's great insight is that we're not just about these rationalist values that we're going to abstract and we think they're floating in the air, that actually the conservative worldview relies a lot on providence, a lot on tradition, the received wisdom of the ages, humility before the tradition, before our ancestors. We've inherited something here, okay? We have a cultural inheritance. We have a family. We're not born into the world as just abstract atoms floating around, but we're, we're actually conserving something. And I think that the conser- that version of conservatism, that it's an inclination rather than just some ideology, is uh, much more coherent, much more sustainable. Uh, the early conservative philosopher, Edmund Burke, was an aesthetic philosopher. He was a philosopher about beauty. You know, conservatives, unlike shrieking Rashida Tlaib, we enjoy things. Conservatives tend to be a little happier, <laughs> a little more at peace in the world, right? Uh, of course we are. We want to conserve what we've got. Whereas the left, they don't like what they see. They're always kind of angry. They're always sort of negative, right? They just want to move past this. Everything bothers them. And, and I fear when right-wingers adopt this ideological view that conservatism, capital C, with a trademark over the M, is just five bullet points on a manifesto. I find they kind of take on the same aspect as the left, the same premises as the left. And that's a losing, even if it were preferable, it's a losing bet because the left is always going to be better at being leftist than we are. All right, that's our show. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. I'm going to be filling in on the Ben Shapiro radio show today. So tune in there. Otherwise, see you on Monday. If you enjoyed this episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Klavan Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Supervising producers, Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Assistant director, Pavel Widowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Audio mixer, Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup, Nika Geneva. Production assistant, Ryan Love. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. You know, the Matt Wall Show 
it's not just another show about, about politics. I think there are enough of those already out there. We talk about culture because culture drives politics and it drives everything else. So my main focuses are life, family, faith. Those are fundamental and that's what this show is about. I hope you'll give it a listen. Mm-hmm.